The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Before we dive into the Word here, I want to give a couple quick announcements about things that are rapidly transforming and changing and coming up here in the near future. Uh, Normally, we would have a lot of things to tell you about that are going to take place in the near future at our church, but we really don't know what those things are at the moment. Here's what we do know. We do know that for now, we are going to be gathering here on this live stream for the foreseeable future on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. What I'm going to ask you to do is today, after the sermon comes to a conclusion, if you would type there into that Facebook uh, comments section just how this experience went for you. Was the volume okay? Was the video okay? Those sorts of things. Just so that we can do our best to try and figure out what we're doing. I'm thankful for the technical side of things being taken care of by our wonderful sound team. But if there's any input that you could give that would be beneficial and helpful and encouraging, please feel free to do that. That would be great for us. Also... Because we are not gathering for our home Bible study right now, and because we are not gathering for our community groups, instead we are going to offer every Tuesday night and Thursday night a live stream of a Bible study. Right now we are going through the book of Philippians, and I would love it if you could join us. The great thing is these are recorded, so you can actually see them later. They are going to remain there on that Facebook page. However, if you are able to join us in real time, that permits you to ask questions and to be involved in the discussion. So it would be wonderful if you could join us for those on Tuesday nights and Thursday nights at 7.30 p.m. Of course, all of our ministries here at the church, just like everywhere else, are required to be canceled for the moment, but please pray that God would rapidly bring to an end this virus and that he would return us to a state of normalcy in our lives and especially here in our church. So there's a lot of stuff that you'll probably be hearing from us in the near future about our plans. We just need to see the direction that this virus will take before we know what those will be. So pray for us as we desire to do our best to figure out the right direction to go during this very challenging time. As uh, many people have noted, um, I've seen this on Facebook many times, I have never pastored through a pandemic before. I hope I never do again. So I literally have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm thankful that God does and that he is sovereignly working in all of these things so that we can continue to worship him and serve him well. So at this time, we're going to go ahead and turn our attention to the Bible. If you are watching and don't have a Bible with you right now, please make sure you have one. Go get one. Open it up all the way to Acts chapter 14. I would be helpful to you to follow along. If you're not grace, if you have not been part of our church services in the past, please know that the way we preach here at the church is to start at the beginning of a book of the Bible and preach our way through it. We desire to hear the word of the Lord in its fullness, in its entirety. So we don't just pick and choose random topics or random passages. We do our best to hear the word of God one verse at a time until we make our way through the book. Uh, We've been preaching right now through the book of Acts, and right now we're in the very middle of the first missionary journey of Paul. Last time we were together in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas were proclaiming the gospel in a place called Pisidian Antioch, which is in the modern-day country of Turkey. And by the grace of God, many people came to Christ. 
But persecution also arose, which caused the missionary duo to then leave the city. They shook the dust off of their feet, and then they made their way 80 miles away to the city of Iconium. So if you have your Bible with you now, please open to Acts chapter 14. And today, we are going to attempt to cover the entire chapter. However, if I preach in my own power, or if you listen in your own strength, then this effort will ultimately be fruitless and worthless. So let's go to the Lord who alone can do mighty works in our minds. God, we pray that today would be a time where we can have our minds renewed and that by renewing our minds, our lives will be transformed and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, your Son. We ask that today, as many people are listening in less than ideal circumstances, we ask that you would help families to pastor their children and husbands to pastor their wives lovingly and shepherd them in a time of worship right now. We ask, Lord, that for those people who are struggling to connect to us right now, Lord, that you would cause them to worship in their own heart at this moment. And we pray, Lord, for the preaching of the word. God, I ask that you would fill me with grace, that I would have compassion upon those who are hearing, that you would give me both truth to proclaim the truth with clarity, that you would give me a vigor to proclaim without wavering, but also, Lord, I pray that you would give me humble, a humble spirit so that I might not hold my help, myself in high esteem. Rather, Lord, help me to see that apart from your grace, I am a wicked sinner and I am in desperate need of everything that you have given to me in Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Today we have a huge text in front of us. The chapter here in chapter 14 tells us the, the history of Paul's ministry to three cities, particularly Iconium and then Lystra and then Derbe. The way that we're going to tackle such a large passage is like this. First, I'm going to do a bit of a running commentary through the text so that you have a strong understanding of what exactly happened to Paul and Barnabas here on their travels. And then what we're going to do is we are going to focus our attention on two main points, the minds of the sinners and the marks of the saints. Let's begin by walking through the text together. So if you have your Bible, look at verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Remember that this is the pattern of Paul's ministry. In every city that he visits, what does he do? He first takes the gospel to the Jews, and then secondly, he takes it to the Gentiles. Notice that their initial ministry in Iconium was incredibly successful, if we could put it that way. Many Jews and many Gentiles believed. People were flocking to Christ. Then verse 2 arises, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Here in Iconium, it's interesting, the division in the city is not drawn along ethnic lines, as it so often has been in the book of Acts. There are Jews and there are Gentiles on both sides of this divide. Verse 3, So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. 
When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycunea, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now, although the apostles were able to stay in Iconium for what it says was a prolonged period of time, they eventually knew that to remain meant that they would have been killed. So they depart. And why did that happen? It happened because the gospel always divides. Consider the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53. He said, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He is saying that the message that he is bringing about himself causes division. Lately, I've been trying to figure out how to use Facebook again. I've been rarely using this for the last several years, so I'm kind of relearning all the new changes that have been made. And as I've been doing that, I've been seeing a lot of different posts being made by a lot of people I haven't seen or heard from in many years. And interestingly, one of the most common posts that has been passed around by many people in recent days is a video of celebrities singing the song, Imagine. This song is a very common song. It's a famous song. It's been sung by many, many people. In fact, every time the ball drops, as soon as it hits the bottom, somebody famous begins singing the song, Imagine. The first words of this song are, Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. There's no God up there. It's just sky. And there's no hell to punish us. Imagine all the people just forgetting about the future of eternity and just living for now. This is one of the most godless and atheistic, wicked songs that our culture adores. But now, that is what the world is teaching. That is the system of the world. Notice all these celebrities that gathered together to sing this song. They are all unified. And actually, the song goes on to talk about unity and the way that they get to that idea, the way that... John Lennon created this pattern of logic was, if there was no God, we would all just be unified and get along. The last group of people who actually successfully tried this were the people at Babel. They wanted nothing to do with God. They wanted to prove themselves against God. They set themselves apart from God, and they said that we will make a name for ourselves to who? Who is there to make a name to? They were trying to prove themselves before God. So without going on a rant, I will simply say that... That song is an anti-gospel. It is a false gospel. And the world is believing this kind of gospel. They are unified in raging against God and against his Christ. And when the gospel comes to a people who submit themselves under the reign of Jesus, what naturally occurs is division. You have unsaved family, probably, if you're a Christian. You probably know people in your family, either in your under your own roof, or maybe in your extended family, who don't know Jesus. And if that is the case for you, you have probably felt the acute sense of separation. Why? 
Not because you don't love them. Of course you love them. You care for them. You, you enjoy to be around them because they're your blood relatives. But at the same time, their goals and desires and aims in life are now very different than yours. You have been made a new creation. The gospel divides. So Paul and Barnabas left Iconium. And then what did they do? They make their way to this place called Lystra. Now at Lystra, there was a man, verse 8, sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. This is very interesting to me. Luke does something quite significant in the text. He explains three times that this man was unable to walk, each time adding a new level of emphasis. He could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and he had never walked. Luke is not wasting ink here. He, he is under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, emphasizing this fact for a reason. Why does he repeat this in three ways? Lystra was a small town. It was a frontier outpost that had been built by Caesar Augustus and the Romans. And it was well off the beaten path. This was not a common place for people to go. We don't really know much about this place from history because it has little reason to make its way into the history books. There was nothing fantastic taking place in this place. One of the few things that we do know from history about this location is that it was filled with nonconformists who are described by one historian as being half-wild and uneducated. The best guess that scholars make is that the place probably only had a population of around 500 at its largest. This was a small town. This means that everybody knew everybody. I come from a town of roughly 10,000 people, and still I feel like everybody knew everybody. In a town this small, everyone knew this crippled man. They had probably all helped him in some way. They had probably all sought to care for him in some way, because you don't get too old in a city like this on the frontier without assistance if you can't walk. And it is this man... This person, this weakest and least in their society, it is this man that receives the gift of faith. Verse 9, he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And what happened? He sprang up and began walking. Now notice the order here. This is important. The gospel message of Paul went out, and then the man believed. Paul sees that he had faith. So this took place before the physical healing. The physical transformation was just a picture of the internal change that had already taken place in his heart. So please notice the order. It is important because this is not implying that we should be doing healing crusades in order to reach the lost. In fact, this healing has the exact opposite effect on the people of Lystra. Verse 11, And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Now, in order to make any sense of this, you need to know a little bit about the folklore, the, the mythology, the legends of the people. There was a legend in this place about the visitation of the gods. These two deities in the Greek pantheon, Zeus and Hermes. And the story went something like this. Zeus 
the king of the gods, and Hermes, his messengers, one day decided to take a vacation from Olympia, and so they stepped down from their heaven-esque thrones, and they came down to the world of men to travel among the people. And then when they reached this area where Lystra happens to be, they changed their appearances to look like men, and they began to test the people. And then they went walking door to door, asking for hospitality. And every time they would knock, people would turn them away. So they would go to the next house and to the next house, becoming more and more enraged at the people as they did. And as the story goes, for the first 1,000 houses, the gods were turned away. But then the very last house they came to belonged to an elderly couple named Philemon and Bouchus. And these two, this elderly couple, welcomed in the strangers, even though they didn't have much, and they served them, and they gave food to them, and provided for their needs. And as a blessing... Zeus and Hermes turned their tiny little shack into this shining temple at the top of a hill, and they made them high priest and high priestess. And then, what did they do? They go down and destroy every house they knocked on the door that turned them away, and even killed the people if they were still in those houses. They were furious with these people. Interestingly, this may give us a, a really good idea here of what Paul and Barnabas looked like. In the, the mythology of the Greeks, Zeus is always depicted as being tall and a broad-shouldered man with strong features and a, a handsome face. And Hermes was very different. He was always short, and he was described as being impish, and he always had a hooked nose. In mythology, Hermes was the messenger of the gods. It was his job to do the talking. So Zeus is the strong, silent type until he gets angry and starts throwing lightning bolts. And Hermes is, is more of the talker. He is the communicator. He's the one that never shuts up. Well, it seems like when they saw these two men, they said, must be Zeus and must be Hermes coming back down to meet the people. And then when they saw them doing something miraculous, when these two strangers walked into town and heal a man who has been lame his entire life, they were determined not to fall into the same mistake their ancestors had supposedly fallen into. So verse 13, and the priest of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now, at this point, Paul and Barnabas do not know what is taking place until this moment. It says that earlier in the text, they didn't understand what was being said because it was being spoken in a Lycanian uh, language. It was an, a different dialect, a language they did not fully comprehend. So they didn't know what these men were saying until they see this bull being marched out there with these different garlands wrapped around its horns, ready to be sacrificed. And when they see that, they freak out. Verse 14, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. Do you remember back to chapter 12 when King Herod was being worshiped by the people as a god? They came out to flatter him they, even in the text, it says they don't like him. They were there just to speak kindly to him so they might benefit from it. But when he heard those words, he adored himself. He loved himself. And he began to use that to lift up his own countenance and to flatter his own heart. He welcomed their praises. And for that, what occurred? He died a gruesome death. As we remember, he was eaten from the inside out by worms. But Paul and Barnabas, they did not have that kind of reaction when people began to seek to worship them as a god. They were horrified by the notion that people would worship them. We could spend a lot of time talking about this, but if we have any Roman Catholic viewers with us this morning, please know that I am going to lovingly speak 
to the system of Roman Catholicism for a moment. Roman Catholicism is nothing more than raw paganism pretending to be Christianity. Modern Roman Catholic practice has began, begun to add to itself all sorts of forms of pagan worship. And in fact, if you study their history, the, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't really even try to hide that fact. People venerate or bow to or light candles to or confess to or pray to or worship multiple created beings that they, uh, and by that they think they are saved. Paul and Barnabas did not accept this kind of veneration because they knew that is an abomination to God. He does not share his glory. But now continue on with me to what Paul says in his message in verse 15. He continues and says, We bring you good news. This word, good news, the gospel. We bring to you a gospel message that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. He actually refers to them worshiping Paul and Barnabas as being vain things. That, even though you like us, the messengers, even though you were looking to the preachers and elevating us, that is a vain thing. There are many preachers who receive an unfortunate amount of glory where they are elevated and lifted high, even higher than their message. And unfortunately, even people sometimes carrying the truth can begin to believe their own press clippings, as they say, and they begin to love themselves above the message. And here they are saying, turn away from that vain theology, that false thinking and turn to a living God. Paul is not a living God. Barnabas is not a living God. Jesus is a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Verse 16, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with gladness. Now we know from Psalm 19, and we know from Romans 1 that God communicates his divine attributes through the created order. It is by these things that people are without excuse because it is impossible to look at the created order and in your heart truly deny that there must be a God. If you look at, I just had a, a new baby a couple weeks ago. If you look at the baby's fingers, how can you deny that there's a God? If you look at the, the microscope and you see these viruses on them, how can you deny that there is a God? You look out into the sky and you see those stars that are so far away, how could you deny that there is a God who breathed them into existence? The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth is proclaiming his handiwork. He is declaring to us that he is indeed there and every one of these people and every one of you people know this to be true in your heart. But verse 18 says, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. These people wanted to do what they were going to do. They wanted to worship in the way that they wanted to worship, regardless of the message. We will consider Paul's argument a little later on, but notice that here, we only have record of him giving the absolute basics to the people. And I think the reason for that is, I don't think they let him get any farther. Verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. There are two things to quickly note here. First, Antioch is over a hundred miles away, and Iconium is at least a day's journey, and these Jews came after Paul and Barnabas. They were not here by chance. They were pursuing these men like they were hunting dogs chasing a raccoon. 
And now that they found them, they convinced the people, what do you need to do? Don't worship these guys. Don't, don't kill a cow for these guys. No, you need to kill those guys. You need to stone that man. I wonder, secondly, what Paul was thinking as they picked up stones to kill him. Do you remember how we met Paul in this book? Do you remember back to chapter 7 when we read about the first martyr, Stephen? It says, Then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That was our first introduction to this man who is now himself, the messenger of Jesus Christ, this man who is now out there professing and proclaiming the glorious nature of the gospel, and now the tables have turned, and he is the one receiving blow after blow from stone after stone intended to take his life. And he was so close to death that the people actually believed he was dead, and they dragged his body outside the city, and they left it there in the dirt. Verse 20 but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Now, it is interesting that there were disciples in Lystra to gather around Paul. We don't know exactly who was converted other than that man who had been crippled. However, it is likely that this is when Eunice and Lois, the mother and grandmother of Timothy, had come to Christ. It is highly likely that they were among those at the side of Paul at this moment. Why did they go out there? I think they went out there to give him a decent burial, and then they were probably shocked when he stood up. But even more astounding is the fact that Paul woke up, and on his own he rose, and he walked right back into the city where he had just been stoned, where the people had just tried to kill him. If actions speak louder than words, Paul was screaming with every loudspeaker available by walking back through those gates, Jesus is my king, and there is nothing that you can do to stop his message. But Paul does not stay in the city. Instead, he takes his cue and he goes on to the next city called Derby. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul and Barnabas are now making their way back to their home church. They are now going back to Antioch, but they make sure to raise up elders and commit these churches to the Lord. This means that they must have spent some time there. They must have done some training there to raise these leaders up and equip them for ministry. Verse 24, then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So they had been sent out to do this work, and they came back having finished that work. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Now this concludes the first missionary journey of Paul. So what we're going to do is, with the time we have remaining, I would like to examine a little more closely two specific elements of what took place in this chapter. First, let's consider the minds of the sinners. In this chapter, we get a really interesting peek into the way that the human brain receives or rejects the gospel. In particular, 
There are three main ways that people mentally responded that are highlighted in this passage. First, there are people who have their minds poisoned against the gospel. Look again at verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. In one commentary, Jack Arnold notes that almost all snakes have the same kind of venom. They have something called hematoxin in their bite. So a poisonous snake will bite you, and that hematoxin then goes immediately into your bloodstream and begins attacking your blood in an effort to kill you. However, there is one snake that is different. It is a particularly dangerous snake that uses a different kind of attack. This snake, the king cobra, instead of having hematoxin, has neurotoxin, which it injects into your body, and it travels to your brain, and then begins to paralyze the mind. The unbelieving Jews in Iconium poisoned the mind of those who had heard the gospel. And this is not unusual, One of the main tools that the devil uses to blind the minds of unbelievers is to convince them that the gospel is either ridiculous or evil. And this mentality is pervasive in our culture. Uh, I was a youth pastor for seven years, a little more than seven years actually, and one of the things that I saw to be so deadly was that the public school system was doing this very thing to our students every time they walked in those doors. We would have a student that would come to youth on a Friday night or go to youth camp and they would hear this message of the gospel and they would be encouraged to think about it. They would process it in their mind. They would even have a lot of questions and then they would go back into their school system and come back a week later beaten down by a system that hates God. They would go in eight hours a day and be pummeled with what I would call atheistic propaganda. Students, I want to speak directly to you. We have students in these chairs almost every Sunday that I know are unsaved, that are open to the fact that they are unsaved, and they will go to extreme lengths uh, to say that they are trying to be intellectual. They are trying to be smart. They are trying to understand it. They are trying to put together the pieces. I want to speak directly to you for a moment and tell you not to be poisoned by the venom of our culture. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Dig into the word and you will see that it really is the truth. But there's a battle for this in all ages. Youth, you are not alone. Unbelievers are constantly being fed a diet of information from our culture that says the gospel is either foolish or evil or both. There are many vipers out there that are seeking to poison the minds of people against the gospel. Um, It is no surprise to you who are listening that when students go to college who are believers, who profess faith in Jesus Christ with their mouth, they go and are extremely tested. I went to college. My first college that I ever attended was in the small town I grew up in, a small Protestant town on the edge of the Bible Belt where most people claimed to be Christian of some form or another. And at this college, even there, in the middle of this place where so many people professed Christ, Even there, my professors were extremely antagonistic and pressured people against belief in Christ. I can't imagine what it is like in the more extreme ends of the college scene today. I know that there is extreme pressure against those who trust in Christ to reject their beliefs and to deny it. But even if the professors in college or even if the teachers in, co- in high school are not pressuring your kids, the, the products that are being put into the school system are designed to undermine the gospel itself. But it doesn't end at school. When you get into your career, 
People do not like that you follow Christ. And they look at you and they think that your way is too narrow. They often call you narrow-minded. But please, if you are listening and you don't know Christ, please understand that we are narrow. We are narrow because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So we are not narrow to keep people out. We are narrow precisely because we know it is the only way for you to get in. So people will call us narrow, and that is right. Please don't be insulted, Christians, when they see that we're narrow, because the truth is always narrow. But now I want you to notice the second way that people received the gospel with their minds. Notice what the people of Lystra did. They heard the message, they saw the power, and they immediately combined the words of Paul with their own pre-existing beliefs. They just added these guys to what they already thought to be true. And what, what happened from that? It resulted in a faulty form of worship that was just as wicked as their paganism had always been. Just as an FYI, the word pagan comes from the original meaning, uh, has the original meaning of country dweller, and it eventually became uh, the word that we use for unbelievers because when the, the cities began to be Christianized, uh, it was the countryside that was very rarely reached with the gospel. So the people out there, those are the ones who don't trust in Christ. Well, here we see that these people had taken the message of the gospel and they added it to their pre-existing beliefs and they created a Frankenstein, as it were, of false theology. But again, this is not unusual. It just looks different depending on the culture the gospel is being preached to. For example, in America, we have a sermon that our entire lives are hearing being preached to us about the glories of the American dream. What is that? That if you just have some combination of money and power and possessions and fame and security and entertainment, then you're going to be happy. You just need those things and you need to go after them with all that you've got. It is no coincidence then that there are thousands of so-called churches in our nation, probably live streaming right now, who are peddling a false gospel that says that God exists for the purpose of making you healthy and you wealthy. The prosperity gospel is no more of a gospel than what these people in Lystra were doing by trying to sacrifice a cow to Paul and Barnabas. The prosperity gospel is what happens when a greedy, materialistic, self-absorbed person hears about Christ. They say to themselves, Jesus is an avenue to advance myself. They consider Jesus to be nothing more than a personalized giving tree whose sole purpose is to make us happy no matter what we ask for. This kind of evil theology is a way for people to imagine themselves as the king of their own universe, with Jesus as nothing more than some kind of a helpful minion who spits out blessings if we just nudge him in the right way. He's like a divine Pokemon for those younger viewers. This is not Christianity. Genuine saving faith requires that we come to the end of ourselves and that we recognize that Jesus, not me, is king. Which coincidentally is the third way that people respond to the gospel in this text. People will either reject him outright or they will try to fit him into their own existing form of paganism or they will actually humble themselves before Christ and they will repent. If you're not a believer and you're hearing my voice right now, I want to talk to you for a moment. Please know that the message of Jesus is a message of grace. It is a message of forgiveness of your sins. The world doesn't have any answer for you when you are asked the question, what should you do with your guilt? I know that you have guilt. I know that you have broken God's commands. 
What do you do with that guilt? You have sinned against a holy God, and there is no way for you to improve. There is no way to make restitution. There is no way for you to correct that relationship or to earn a right standing with him. The Bible teaches that you have fallen short of the glory of God. You have sinned against him. Because God is perfect, if he permitted anything less than perfect to be accepted in his presence, then he would become less than perfect and less than God. You must be perfect. And that is bad news for you. And it is bad news for me because we are not perfect. But this is the good news. That Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, came, was born of a virgin Mary, lived on this planet just like you and I, except he was perfect. He was sinless. He never once did anything in his mind or in his actions that was anything less than holy. And that Jesus died on the cross, not because of his own sins, but because he bore the sins of his people on his shoulders, he carried them to the cross, and he paid for them so that every person who would ever be saved at that very moment had their sins erased. And his perfect life, his perfect record, was then given to us, and it comes to us in time. So perhaps you're not a believer and you're listening to this live stream today. Please know that you are on your way to hell unless you repent and place your trust in Jesus Christ, unless you believe that he died for your sins and rose again to be your king today. So I ask you, if you are not a believer... Not to, not to go through this day like nothing has happened, but to hear this gospel and hear it in your mind. Just don't respond like these people in Iconium. Don't respond like these people in Lystra. Don't just reject it outright, and don't just try to fit it into your already comfortable religious perspective. Come to the Word of God and humble yourself before Jesus and believe in Him. Let's move now to the second thing that I want to zoom in on from this text this morning, which is the Mark's of saints. Now, if there are any Roman Catholic viewers, I want to clarify here for a moment. When I use the word saint, I am using it the way the Bible uses the word. It uses this term over 40 times in the New Testament, and every one of those references is speaking about all Christians who have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. So by saint, what I mean is true Christian. So in the last letter that Paul would ever write, he reminds Timothy of the sufferings that he experienced here in these cities that we read about in Acts 14. He says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. Notice that Iconium and Lystra are the two cities we talked about today, two of the three, which persecutions I endured. What persecutions? Well, being kicked out of the city, to be in fear for his life, and even to be stoned until they thought he was dead. Yet, from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is an intense promise. He tells Timothy, you remember what happened to me there? Do you remember all of that suffering? Do you remember when you were a little boy and I was out there on the ground and your mom and your grandmother stood around my body that was broken and bleeding out? Do you remember that moment? All who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Now, it may not look like that. In fact, I'm assuming for you who are watching, it will not be like that. But every true Christian who has experienced that division from culture and division from those who don't trust Christ will experience that kind of persecution that they look at you and think you are crazy. 
True Christians do experience persecution on one level or another. But Christians are also supposed to respond to that adversity. How? Like Paul did, with steadfastness and with boldness that alone can come from Christ. Notice that God knew exactly what he was doing. Why did all this stuff happen to Paul? Why did this stuff happen to Barnabas? He allowed them to be chased out of Pisidian Antioch because there were many people who God was planning to save in Iconium. And then God allowed the enemies of the gospel to become hostile in Iconium because God desired to start a church in Lystra. And God even permitted Paul to suffer the extreme pain of being stoned until they thought he was dead because God desired to expand his kingdom to Derby. The Christian should humbly be devoted to serve the Lord in any and all circumstances that arise because we know that God is sovereignly maneuvering our steps exactly where he wants us to be. Right now, uh, most of us are in a place where we don't want to be, not because we don't love our homes, but because we are currently trapped in them for the most part. Most of us are looking at this scenario with this virus, and we're not sure why God is doing what he's doing. And God may never show you why he is doing what he is doing. This virus has disrupted our lives in ways that we never would have imagined just a few weeks ago. But if you are currently stuck at home, maybe, just maybe, the Lord is using this time to renew your awareness that your family is your mission field. So parents, don't let this time go by without teaching your children to follow the Lord. Don't let this time go by without them learning at least these two lessons from you. Let them learn the lesson that you love them, that you unconditionally love them, but also that you love Jesus and have been unconditionally loved by Jesus. So what should you do? Refresh your family devotions. Pray together. Sing to the Lord together. Read the Bible together. Take this time where you are trapped in your own home and perhaps you will see a great fruit of righteousness that the Lord is doing in your own life. And even for those who are alone, those who are listening, who don't have family in your homes, the Lord has you there for a good reason. And don't, don't think of this time as worthless. Rather, use this time to personally be in the Word and in prayer. Use this time to write letters to our missionaries. I particularly think of Jesse and Jerry V at this time, where they are in Italy, which is now the epicenter of this virus outbreak. In fact, if what I read last night is accurate, Italy has now had more cases than China, and they've had more deaths than China. And for a much smaller country, that is substantial. And right now, especially because Jerry V is expecting a new baby coming later this year, we need to be in prayer that God would watch over them and protect them. So encourage them. Write them an email. Write them a letter. See if there's a way that you can connect with them in a better way. We need to use this time that the Lord has given us right now, not in a wasted way, but to use it for God's glory in this moment. The mark of a true believer is what we do when we encounter adversity. What do we do? A true Christian runs to Jesus, not away from trouble. What could possibly have caused Paul to get up and walk back into that city? I look at that and I am amazed. What was going through his mind when he stood up and he looked at the gates of that town and he dragged his bleeding and bloodied body through those doors? Why did he do that? Nobody can stand against us if the Lord is with us. I think that's what he knew. This kind of boldness arises in the soul of anyone who knows that to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
And that kind of boldness will be yours if you truly recognize that you have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. So please notice that boldness is not a one-time, limited, small-scale event like just living through getting stoned until you were deaf. Paul was not only bold when he walked his mangled body back through those gates, he was also bold when he was walking in daily reliance on the Lord, and that is why he was filled with boldness in every part of this chapter. Earlier, we sang that song, Now Why This Fear and Unbelief? That song is based in the idea that we find in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. That verse says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God was willing to send his own son to carry a cross for you, don't you think that he's going to graciously give you all things? Now, please note in the context, this is not telling you he's going to give you whatever you want. It does not say he's going to give you all things that you desire. He is going to give you all things that are best for you. In particular, he is going to give you the treasure of the universe, Christ himself. In fact, just a couple verses later, it explains that we will experience things like tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. In other words, believers will experience the lack of food and lack of clothes and lack of safety on occasion. But even in the midst of these temporary moments of discomfort or moments of lack, God is working. Paul's suffering was not meaningless. His faithful boldness in the face of persecution was part of the process of God bringing several churches into existence. God allowed these things to exist so that his kingdom would advance. And Paul never looked back at these circumstances and complained. What do we see him doing? Rather, he said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is part of the deal, guys. It is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. The Bible never promises that being a Christian will be easy. It never says that following Jesus will take away your trials. In fact, quite the opposite. But it does teach us that it is worth losing everything else if we can just have Jesus. Perhaps you know the words of that old hymn, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. Let me read for you the lyrics. I'm not going to sing it for you. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than vain applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Now, I wonder if that's true for you. Is Jesus really the treasure of your life? Do you treasure him above all else? If you do, then you will walk in the same kind of spirit-filled boldness that Paul exhibits here in Acts chapter 14. This is not a way to glorify Paul. This is a way that we recognize that those who glorify Christ can walk fearlessly in this world. So the world right now is not fearless. In fact, there are people panicking everywhere that I look because one of the things that they have trusted in is that they can control their future. They think that they are going to be safe. 
Our gyms are filled with people who go to the gym every day because they think it's going to make them live long. They think that their lives are going to make it to 95, 100 years old. And now that is being threatened. If this life is all you have to live for, you do have reason to fear. But if you have Christ, then there is no need for fear. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would please bless the hearing of your word. Lord, I thank you that many people have been able to hear over the the internet. I thank you for the common grace of Facebook, which I never thought I would say. Lord, I, I praise you that you are good and you are kind, and even in the midst of a really challenging season, you are showing yourself faithful. I thank you that there are so many people right now who have heard the gospel that are not believers. God, I pray that their hearts would not be hardened, that they would not just adopt this into their pre-existing beliefs, but Lord, I pray that rather they would humble their hearts before you, they would lay down their lives before you, and they would trust in Christ and be saved. And for those of us who do know you, I pray that we would be strengthened, that we would be encouraged, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus and fearlessly walk in this world, knowing that everything that you do in our lives is for a purpose, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.